Well, greetings, everybody. Welcome once again to the Rec Poker Podcast. I'm your host, Steve Fredland, and we are officially sponsored by Running Aces Casino and Racetrack. Today, I'm excited to bring you part two of my interview with Minnesota Poker Hall of Famer, Mike Schneider. Uh, Mike is just a fantastic pro, fantastic guy, really helping build the game of poker. And he also leads the Poker is Fun Tour. So you're going to hear a little bit about that, some upcoming events uh, over the next week. So make sure you check those out if you're uh, regionally around Minnesota. Some really cool things coming up here. So check that out. So without further ado, let me uh, play a little bit of a spot for our sponsor. And then we will get back into that interview with Mike Schneider. Running Aces Casino and Racetrack has the best poker room in Minnesota. Featuring 24-7 promos on all cash poker games, including earning $2 per hour in comps, plus the most player-friendly tourney structures. Visit RunAces.com for daily promotions and the tournament calendar. Running Aces Casino and Racetrack, the official sponsor of Rec Poker. So now I'm curious a little bit about um, C-betting when you're the pre-flop aggressor. So again... Uh, we hear a number of different approaches, and I think a lot of them just depend on different situations, but it's one of those things that I know me and other recreational players within my poker tribe, <laughs> we talk about quite a bit. Um, you know, how how often in general should we be c-betting, you know, what are the sort of boards? And so we think about all these different approaches, we hear from different people, uh, and maybe you can help us reconcile, at least give us a, a broader perspective. Some folks, I even heard, heard it like watching an HPT broadcast one time, Kenneth James said, man, you should be C-betting upward of 90%, uh, and that's where I used to be a lot, and then I learned a lot, and I you know, I see that far less. But, you know, other people say, you know, consider your range versus your opponent's range for any given flop, and then C-bet when we have a range advantage. So in this case, it's not really based on our hand strength. Uh, it's really based on kind of a range versus range strength. And then I was chatting with Matt Hamilton, who shared some stuff about Doug Polk, who's really looking at, you know, where does my hand fit into one of these categories? Either, you know, is it a value hand, which means it's a strong-made hand? Is it a marginal hand, like top pair, medium kicker, or second or third pair? Uh, is it a strong draw, like a straight, a flush draw, or two overs? Or is it a trash hand? And then uh, look at how do we, you know, do we see better not based on, you know, sort of our hand strength in one of those categories? So I see these different things where it's, um, different paradigms. One is just see bet a lot. One is range versus range, and one is actually looking at the strength of our hand on that board. And so I'm curious. That's uh, a, a long intro to a question, I know, but um, you know, how how do you think about see betting, or conceptually, how should we be challenging ourselves to think about whether we should see bet or not? Well, I would say it's probably some combination of the second and the third ways. So like considering range versus range, and then considering hand strength. Which, I mean, C-betting 90% of the flops is not yeah. going to be correct unless it's either against very exploitable opponents who are falling way too often. Or perhaps if you're a huge stack on the money bubble of a big tournament, then then in that spot, like, it often might be correct to C-bet every single time just right. because of ICM considerations that opponents, if, if they're taking those into account and they're folding a lot trying to make the money, but yeah, I'm uh, mostly using our range versus their range, uh, but even then it isn't simply just betting when we have a range advantage, which I prefer a mixed balance range. So like I'd say, like for example, we open jack-9 suited in the hijack and the button cold calls us and the flop comes jack-8-2. I'd say mm -hmm. this is a flop that we should be checking even though we have a range advantage against their range. 
which uh, I'd be checking here because it's about the worst jack that we, we have. But we do need some hands that are strong enough for us to be able to check and call two or three streets, which if we, like, exclusively see that when we have a range advantage and exclusively check when we don't, then, like, any savvy opponent can simply bet every flop and bet every turn when checked to, and they can make a ton of money off of us and or just put us in some really tough spots when when we check pocket tens or, like, ace eight suited on that jack eight two flop. Like I, it's talking more specifically about the Jack Eight Two flop. Like I would check Jack Nine suited most of the time there. Any of the eights with a kicker above the Jack, which I'm picking those because a lot of times people like hold called with King Queen suited or King Ten suited. If we check to them, they might check it back, and uh, I I'd like for the the chance for them to be able to like turn a king, and then we have King Eight, and we made two pair to their one pair, and we get to yeah. hopefully win a lot of chips off of them. And then plus, just by having an older card of the board, it helps helps protect uh, a lot of a lot of the ways that turn cards might might pre- be perceived to be bad for our hand. But it just blocks some of the ways that those older cards can can affect us. So then, if you're uh, thinking about like like in that spot, like sorry to interrupt you, but like yeah, no problem, so yeah. if you have Jack Nine and the flop is Jack Eight Two, let's say you know re- regardless of what you have, you know you you yeah. got free flop and and they called. And the Jack A2 comes up, you have a range advantage. So, you know, some people say, okay, well, you have a range advantage, you should fire. But you're saying, well, okay, yes, I recognize, I acknowledge I have a range advantage. But now, based on what I have, I have got, you know, a, I'd say a medium strength hand. So I'm yeah. going to check with the intention of calling, whatever that is. So, I mean, does that same thing hold then if you have, you know, an ace king? You said, you know, kind of an ace eight, king eight, that sort of thing, that maybe holds there. But like, you know, say you completely missed, you have ace king, or say you open with, pocket fours, uh, or you have jacks, or, you know, say, say queens, you know, a pair yeah. above the board. You know, yeah. how do you sort of reconcile all of those things, or is it almost in every situation it's a, it's a check on that board, and I'm either going to call or fold or, you know, three better, or, did, you know, re-raise? Yeah, I kind of – so, like, combining today with what we talked about last time, I'd yeah. kind of look at it as far for, like, whether to see bet or not, I'd look at it as – like with that Jack Eight Two Rainbow flop, if I have Ace King suited and I have the backdoor flush draw, I'm probably going to be betting like one quarter pot just due to that the whole reason of trying to make sure I get to see a turn card for pretty cheap. Whereas okay. like if it was Ace King off suit, I might check there, and if they bet large, I'm just going to hold. If they bet kind of smaller, I'm probably going to take one off and see a turn card. But yeah, then a lot of those other hands. I mean, like you have to so, like like a good chunk of our range should be either the strong value hand. So like we're probably gonna be betting like pocket queens there every time, ace jack every mm-hmm. time. Then but then I, I'm still mainly concerned about making it so that my my checks on the flop aren't so exploitable that an opponent can just barrel every street and expect mm-hmm. that I can't call them. So that's that's why I want to include some of those hands like Jack Nine suited, and I'm probably going to check a set of twos on the swap too, just because mm. that that at least guarantees that I have for sure one hand that can check and call whether you put a, every chip in the pot or some of the chips. Like we we want we want to make it so that not only our opponents fear our bets, but we want them to fear our checks a little bit too. Which right. Which once they fear our checks, then it just becomes a heck of a lot easier to play pocket sevens on a jacket two flop. They might check it down and we get to win without ever having to make a decision. Compared mm-hmm. to we check they bet the flop and we have pocket sevens like, well, this guy's kind of aggressive. He could have queen ten here, he could have ace five here, and then we just 
like if they don't fear our checks, we just get in a lot of really crappy spots with a lot of our range there, and we check. So that's I, I try to keep that in mind when when assembling a, a range there of what we're betting and checking. Which I'd say, I mean, predominantly we are going to be betting our our strongest hands and our best draws, but we we need to mix in some checks with our best hands, and we need to have some marginal hands still be bets. That's so good. So, yeah, so and for a hand example, like, yeah, and a hand like pocket fours, and sorry there, yeah, but yeah, a hand no, like go pocket ahead. fours, like I, I still bet that flop because the other, the other part you need to like anytime you're see betting is you need to ask yourself like how am I, how am I going to feel if I get raised here? So like if pocket right. fours, if I bet and I get raised, like I don't care. Like okay, I have two outs like every time at best. And right. Then, I mean, occasionally I get bluffed by like ten nine or queen ten, but most of the time. I, it doesn't matter if they raise. Like, I'd love to take it down here, but if they raise, like, oh, well, that's okay. Whereas, that's what I was going to say, like, so so the, the case that where you're, you're continually betting your, your quarter size or your, you know, third size or your four fours, you know, you're betting with the intention of folding to a raise. Your queens, you're betting with the intention of calling a re-raising to a, to a raise. You know, your ace-king suited, I guess, I don't know where that falls. But so that's the idea of thinking ahead as saying, I'm going to have a balanced range. I'm going to, you know, I'm going to bet some, Big hands and some small hands. I'm going to check some big hands and some medium hands, or you know, some medium hands and some trash. But but knowing going in, what's my intention here if I'm raised? Yep, yeah, that's that's gonna gonna help make a lot of decisions easier when before you do it, you're asked how how am I gonna feel about that? Which so that part of like the Jack Nine decision is I, I'm checking because I, I don't want to bet and be raised because that that builds too big of a pot and I don't know I don't know if I like where I'm at versus. Yep. You know, check check calling. I'm more comfortable with that more of a pot control sort of approach. Yeah. Yep. Exactly. Like that. Yeah. The hands, the hands strong enough that we don't want to fold, but not so strong that we end up wanting to play a huge pot. So yeah, that right. that fits perfectly in the mold, while still helping it be that they can't just bet the flop and turn and expect us to fold on a turn. If we check call the flop, we're probably going to check call most turn cards. I mean, maybe there's. Maybe if an ace comes and they bet pot on the turn, we might, even though, you know, it can be very easily be a card they're bluffing now, but it, it just, it's a card that we're, a jack nine is a hand where most of the time we're going to be able to check and call two streets and mm-hmm. just make it so that they can exploitively barrel three streets against us and expect to win it every single time by firing. Right. Okay. Well, any anything else on the whole sea betting thing? Um... That's good stuff. Yeah, I guess, I mean, going back to that, I mean, I guess, I mean, just a quick thing, like, I talk about how I check the set of twos there. I mean, I would yeah. say it with the caveat of if we know the opponent is hyper-aggressive, I, if we know it's in a hyper-aggressive opponent, I'm not going to name any names who might be that, those guys, but, <laughs> but if we know it's one of those kind of guys, then I'm fine betting it because, like, the Jack-8-2 flop is the kind of flop that they may attack, mm-hmm. so... Outside of those spots where where we, I mean, we can definitely be, as we're trying to, like, have an optimal balanced range, you, you can tweak it a little and change your decisions based on the opponents. So nothing's really nothing's really set in stone with any of these kind of guidelines that I play with in my head. Right. Well, let's, that, that Jack-8-2 flop where you have pocket deuces, uh, you know, if you consider a situation where normally you would check, so it's not against one of the hyper-aggressive people, but a situation where you normally would check. But what if the flop is, you know, jack 10-2 with the jack and 10 are both diamonds or something? Does that make you distill more of a check 
Kolchak race sort of mode or the, the board has gotten a bit wetter, does that make you more prone to, to lead right out? I'm still probably going to check there most of the time, or then now we're talking, like, just due to the wetter board, I'm probably going to check raise once checked to, or compared to the, the drier board, I just check call. But okay. outside of that, like, I, I realize, like, there are players that might have king-queen or ace-king or ace-queen there that the cold called with and then check back the flop, which is clearly not an optimal outcome for our pocket twos, but... I'm still probably checking there almost every time just because I I play ace king and ace queen that way a lot and mm-hmm. trying to trying to more or less protect like I've probably said this about six times now, but protect my checking range. Like yeah, it, yes. Yep. So you want people like to clear a, your checking range. Yep, I want like I and plus I mean just it's like a in a tournament too, like a, a lot of those I mean Ace King, Ace Queen hands like you. You don't want to have to check and put in like another mm-hmm. six big blinds on that flop, even though you have to. Like it, just getting the, the possibility to save an extra fifteen percent of your stack just because people fear your check. It's gonna mm-hmm. pay dividends in the long run, more oh, so really than good. the one time that you bet the flop and they decide to go all in with Ace Jack and. And, like, the other thing, too, like, if they have a hand like ace-jack and you check, there's still a pretty good chance you're going to get all the chips in anyway, but yet you manage to protect your checking range while doing so. Hmm. Mm-hmm. So, like, a lot of the fear of, like, oh, but I'm not going to get max value. There there are ways that you're still going to get all the chips, even just by checking first. Right. Oh, that's good. Okay, so I'm thinking about now... Um, you know, you've talked about, you know, balancing your ranges and, you know, protecting your check check range and all those things. And so I'm curious, um, with with the caveat that, I, that I'm learning more and more with every discussion that everything depends. You know, everything depends on yeah. stack size. Everything depends on type of player and everything depends on where you are in the tournament. You know, everything depends. But um, it, it still feels like there's a, a general concept of having default ranges for different things and the most obvious thing is pre-flop you know what are you going to open with from what position and obviously you adjust it based on the dynamics of the table and all of those things but still generally it feels like most people have some sort of a default range for opening pots pre-flop and so i'm curious if that's true of you as well but then not that you have to get into what they are, but just a general, you know, range so you're not having to make every decision on the fly. You just kind of know what you're going to play in which position. But then also, what are the other areas where you, where people generally have uh, preset default ranges? Like, you know, like three betting preflop or, uh, you know, calling uh, raises preflop or four betting. I mean, do, do, do people at the higher levels generally have predefined ranges for all of those things that they then adjust? Or is everything are you able to just ever process every situation with all the different factors on the fly to determine the, the optimal decision? Yeah, I mean, I definitely have defaults that I'll start every tournament with, but a lot of times it, it will depend a lot on the table and how their table's playing, too. Like, I... Okay, I feel like that especially early in a lot of the tournaments around here, it's really hard to open raise an early position and not end up like four or five mm-hmm. ways to the flop. So, right. like, I'd love to, I mean, but 
Like, I'd love to just feel like open raise, like king queen offsuit under the gun in these early in the tournaments, but like uh, a lot of the times at the table, like I don't even feel like I want to do that because I end up five ways and I'm out of position with with a uh, offsuit hand that really doesn't play too well unless I hit a flop mm-hmm. really, really hard and avoid every draw out there. But <laughs> like I, like I mean, it's a the ranges too, I mean, the other, I mean, just talking general, like, the ranges too really vary whether we're earlier in the tournament or later in the tournament. Like, uh, a lot of, a lot more of these suited connector hands, especially the smaller ones, are going to be more playable in level one and three versus level 18, where right. now our seven, six suited and mid position for 15 big mm-hmm. lines, like, it really isn't worth anything, whereas, Level one, when we had 150 big blinds, like, yeah, let's get in there, that 7-6 suited. So, like, in that kind of way, situationally, based on the chip stacks, it's really changing a lot. So do you have that, is that, um, I mean, well-constructed uh, for you as far as, okay, I know my ranges are, you know, my default ranges are this, and, you know, here's how they change um, based on stage of tournament or based on number of big blinds. I mean, do you just kind of have that uh, framework that you've worked out over the years that that is your default strategy, or do you feel like you're just kind of adjusting everything on the fly? You know what I mean? I mean, I I know you're always adjusting, but I'm trying to to get my arms around, you know, do people say, no, here here is what my opening range is, here's what my three-betting range is, by position early in a tournament, and then once we hit, you know, 50 big blinds or whatever the number is, and then once we hit 20 big blinds, or, you know, how how do you just frame that up? I'm curious, like, how much of it is it's sort of structured, and how much of it is, the free-flowing adjustment? I'd say, I mean, if I were probably, like, 75% structured, like, I know pretty, like, like, I know, like, early on, I'm I'm not going to be playing, like, certain hands under the gun, and mm-hmm. then just as the chip stacks change, I'm probably taking out even more of the hands, and a lot of that's just pretty structured with, like, a little bit of variation. Like, if the table's playing really tight, like, I'm going to add in a bunch more hands because... right. I I just am happy to steal one, especially once the Annie's are in play, then I'm like really happy to just steal the blinds or get heads up and have a solid chance of getting to take down a heads up pot. But I mean like like early like early on I'm never like open raising like pocket fours under the gun unless we've mm-hmm. played for two hours and everybody's playing really tight or unless like every hand's going seven ways, then and both then I deviate and say, Alright, we're going seven ways, I'll just even limp fours under the gun right. or two hours in everybody every pot heads up like okay we're under the gun I'm an open race fours even though I know on a standard table I probably am just folding fours under the gun but like I mm-hmm. like in that kind of way that's how the deviations start to come in but yeah overall I pretty much enter every tournament with like a pretty solid fairly rigid framework of what hands I'm playing in which position and the three betting though on the on the converse, three betting is a lot more of an art than a science to me, where like that's more I mean even like it's it still is I mean rigid in the sense of again, guys that play a ton of hands I have one set of ranges against guys that are tighter, I have a whole different set of ranges. But in in that kind of way, three betting I feel like is a, a lot more in the moment compared to what hands I'm opening where that's a little more of a rigid by the mental chart kind of guidelines. Mm-hmm. Okay, so it's more just more player dependence and situationally dependence, and you still have probably a range of things that you would consider, but it's not. As, yeah, 
That's not the overwhelming factor. Yeah, yeah, and then yeah, the other other thing was the pre-plot ranges to uh, just like really focused on trying to trying to construct a range that that still, I mean, predominantly, I mean, big cards and big pairs and stuff, but still like mixed in with having a six five suited and mm-hmm. having a nine eight suited still in my early range is often enough so that like one of the one of the things that's important is constructing pre flop ranges in a way where I still have, still have board coverage no matter where I'm at. Like people can't just assume that uh six five two flop never ever hit me unless I, you know, haven't have a big huge pair. Mm-hmm. Like that's like I'm not gonna play like eight seven suited every time under the gun, but I'm probably gonna be playing it like twenty five percent of the time under the gun, like that kind of pre flop range construction so that it is possible for any board to hit me without without playing every single hand to make that possible to happen. Because obviously if you play 100% of your hands, then every board can hit you. But right. we're, we're trying to aim to play 20% of our hands under the gun, but still make it so that people people have to be worried that any board can hit you. They know you're capable of having the open yeah, hand. Yeah, even if it's, yeah. yeah, even if it's not that often that I have it, just for them to know that it's a capability that, that yes, might can have like right. the turn comes to nine. Yes, it is possible Mike made a straight there, even the most yep. time he didn't. I played with him a year ago, and I remember he had you know, and it just people do remember those kind of things. Yeah. So I'm I'm curious. Uh, we got to get rolling pretty soon here, but um, just just even you mentioned that a few other players have mentioned this, and I haven't really dug into it, but uh, you said something like you know, in that case, I might I might play with that hand 25 percent of the time under the gun. Um, and I'm curious though. You know, okay, okay. If I get this hand under the gun four times, I'm going to play it once. Is it, you know, how do you know which time to play it? Is it sort of this random thing, or is it more like, okay, I picked up eight, seven suited here, but you know, I've been fairly aggressive, so this is not the time I want to play it. Or, man, I just I've been kind of card dead, so this is the time I'm going to play it because my image is good. Like, how do you decide if I'm if I'm going to play something, you know, just half the time, a quarter of the time? How how do you decide which times you're going to play it, and which times you're not? Good question. So if it's so if I like don't have a table image yet there on the table, it's entirely based on card suits actually, which is a very very easy way. Like if you know there's certain hands you want to play 25 or 50 percent of the time, you can just before the tournament decide to yourself. All right, today clubs are my suits. Oh, so like two suitors, like both the black black suits are. So which like that's the thing where like it might seem like if somebody is aware you're doing that, that they can. They could exploit it, but they really can't. Especially like once, like once I maybe if I play clubs twice, maybe I'll be like, all right, now my suit's hearts instead. Like you can change up right. the suits yeah. whenever you want. It's still effectively random as far as when you are. But then I, right. I said that like as far as if I have no table table limits, like it's going to deviate some. If I've opened four hands in the last ten hands and my suit was clubs and I pick up eight seven of clubs under the gun, like I'm not going to play that hand just because. Okay. Yeah. Just because, like, even though game, even though my my game theory optimal pre flop build says I should, they're like I'm gonna deviate from there just because I don't think my table limits is gonna is gonna get my raise through enough to make it worthwhile to try. Because people are far more likely to three bet you if you bet. Yeah, yeah, yeah. three bet and right. or cold call, either one. Like, sure. yeah, so I mean, it's some combination of using what I think people are perceiving my my hand range to be coupled with then. Picking out one or two suits that are like my suits that are I'm going to be using for that day or that level or however you want to do it. Yeah. (laughs) 
That's you fantastic, really gotta, yeah. No, there's no way, but yeah, the deck, the deck's built in a way to make it pretty easy for you to randomize your, your hands in that kind of way. Which yeah, is like the same way how you can do that with, with hands that you might 3-bet or 4-bet with pre-flop. Or mm-hmm. like if you open raise ace-king suited and somebody 3-bets and both of you guys are really, really deep in level 1, like you, like maybe you decide like I'm gonna, I wanna call 75% of the time, but 25% of the time I wanna 4-bet with ace-king suited, so then you, you have a, very non-biased, simple way to make sure it is 25% of the time that you are. Yeah, that's very interesting. Well, hey, hey, we gotta, we gotta run here. Uh, you've given us so much time and I appreciate that, but I wanna chat a little bit about some of the cool stuff that you have coming up, which is actually coming up next weekend. Uh, yeah, tell, yeah. tell us about the Poker's Fun Tour. Tell us a little bit about, uh, you know, what you're doing with that and what cool stuff you have coming up. Yeah, all right. So, yeah, the Poker's Fun Tour, we have events at Canterbury Park in Shakopee, Minnesota. Three events, one on Friday, July 20th at 6 p.m., $80 No Limit Crazy Pineapple. Saturday, July 21st, we at 11 a.m., we have a $250 buy-in uh, Texas Hold- No Limit Texas Hold'em winners shown. Sunday, July 22nd at 12.30 p.m. is our final event, which is a $100 No Limit Crazy Pineapple Hold'em. Now, all three of these events uh, have have a portion of the prize pool going to the Ronald McDonald House, and otherwise there are uh, two satellites too that you can play to try to qualify for that Saturday $250 winner shown. Which those satellites are on Thursday the 19th at 6:30 p.m. and Friday the 20th at 12:30 p.m., which are both are $65 satellites, and 20% of players win a seat to the winner shown event. Oh, it's so good. And, you know, I mean, for those of you who are out there listening, if you don't know Mike, uh, but you trust me for whatever reason, you trust me. <laughs> trust me in that, in saying that, you know, Mike is a fantastic dude, stand-up guy. Uh, this, this whole vision behind the Poker is Fun Tour to make poker fun again, but also to give back. Uh, just incredibly highly respected and things will be run well. I really encourage you, go check out these events. Uh, you know, and the energy is fantastic because people are, you know, playing the winter show and it's kind of fun and crazy pineapple, like you said last week was, you know, it's the first time you think this is being played in Minnesota, so there's yeah. a cool energy around it. There's money going back to, to charity. I think it's just a it's a really cool concept, and I encourage people to, to check it out. Go play it if you can. Uh, PIFTPoker.com, right, for all the yep, details? Yeah, one other detail I forgot to mention yeah. that is really cool. Uh, so I do live reporting all three days there. So some of you guys that have never had the chance to go play a $1,000 MSPT or whatever, like, hmm. this is your chance to come play and possibly get a hand reported on the Internet for you to share with your family or friends and be like, oh, look, there's me. There's a picture of me. That's so and, cool. Yeah, it's so like I don't know how many other attorneys in the country can you go play a $100 tournament and have live right. coverage for. There might be a couple of them here and there, but it's very rare. And one of the things that I... Also, I'm like very proud of about uh, Poker's Fun Tour. They're just trying to trying to give a, a lot more casual recreational players a chance to possibly get their five minutes of fame. And yeah, which I'd say that too if you're listening and you do come and play and you want me to come report a hand for you, send me a send me a tweet at PIFT Poker and tell me your table number and seat and or just come stop by and say hey, why don't you come like try to find a hand? Like I'll be happy to happy to give you a little bit of coverage. That's so awesome. That's really cool. So PIFTPoker.com. Follow at PIFTPoker on Twitter. Follow Schneid's Poker on Twitter. Get connected with, with Mike and what he's doing. I know he's got a, he's got a cool heart for this thing and the, 
the charitable stuff is near and dear to his heart personally. And uh, last week, uh, if, you, if you didn't hear last week's episode, go back and listen to that. At least first, the first uh, five ten minutes of that, we talk a bit about what Crazy Pineapple is, uh, and also the, the, the winter shown thing, as well as the charity. So uh, a lot more detail there as well. If you want to hear from Mike as far as his vision behind this thing, but. Man, Mike, I, I can't thank you enough. I know our audience loves hearing from you, and I appreciate the insights. Uh, I guess any uh, any final words as we wrap up here to our recreational players as we all try to take that next step toward uh, improving our game? Oh, I'd just say, I mean, keep grinding at it. There's no wrong way to approach things. And just, like, a lot of, like, as I play poker, too, like, I realize, like, not everything is the way how I originally thought. So, like, I mainly <laughs> just, like, keep an open mind and, Everything I've said over these two podcasts, like, I'm not claiming that everything's 100% perfect poker strategy or thoughts. Like, I'm, I'm open to the possibility that things I said in a month, I might say, no, that was totally wrong. So, like, just as you're studying, look at things with an open attitude, and I think you'll be amazed by the games that you can make in your game. Love it. Well, thanks so much, Mike. Yep. Yeah. And I'll see you around and hope to, we get to chat again, uh, again in the not too, too, not too distant future. We will make it happen. Thanks, sir. Yep. Well, there you have it. Thanks again, Mike. I appreciate your time. Uh, you're one of those folks that people just keep asking for. We want more from Mike. We want more from Mike. So uh, happy to be able to provide that and just grateful that Mike is willing to share. And once again, if you can, if you're in the area, check out the Poker is Fun Tour down at Canterbury Park. Uh, some really uh, fun stuff going on down there. And Mike uh, is going to be, as you mentioned, live reporting it and giving you all a, a feel for what it's like to be covered in the press as you're playing a tournament. So thanks to Mike. Uh, thanks also to all the recreational players. Just been overwhelmed by uh, the growth in the podcast, which is super fun. But more than that, it's fun to see the brand being out there, patches everywhere, T-shirts everywhere, sweatshirts everywhere, hats everywhere. Uh, and it's just starting to grow now. So if you're interested in helping us build the brand, I uh, appreciate that. It's very encouraging to me. Uh, as, as we do that, it's just a real honor to be able to chat with some of these great professional players, some of the great recreational players, and really build uh, what I call my poker tribe, which is uh, those folks that I enjoy hanging out with, I enjoy talking to, and are actually, in the meantime, helping me become a better player, but in many ways helping me become a better person as I learn different perspectives on the world. So thanks to all of you. Uh, thanks to our guests. Thanks to the Rex. Thanks to Running Aces for sponsoring the show. And with that, uh, we will chat with you next week. Good luck on and off the felt. <laughs>